Welcome to episode 26 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanaw, and I am your host. This episode features Seth Bosted. Seth is a composer, pianist, entrepreneur. Uh, the, the dude's just a new music badass. He does so much. He's the founder of Access Contemporary Music, which started as this ensemble that basically did composer readings and has now grown into this this living being this this amazing business that is the beating heart of new music in chicago they teach music lessons um they put on performances they uh one of those performances is the thirsty ears music festival which is where a city block is closed down one end one end of the street is um a performance there's a stage and um the other end is all vendors where local businesses can sell their products. There's restaurants along the side. There's beer sold. It's a great time. Another really cool thing he does, I love this, the, the silent film music festival. The way it works is a living filmmaker makes a silent film. A living composer is commissioned to write music for that film. And then that film is projected onto a large screen in front of an audience with an ensemble performing the music by the composer. Such a cool idea. I love this so much. I, I don't want to say anything else, honestly, because all of the amazing things Seth has to say is, is more important for you to hear than what I could have even attempted to succinctly put into a, a small little blurb here in the front. So I'm going to leave it all at that. Uh, thank you all for listening, for following. Please like and subscribe. And um, yeah, let's make some noise. My name is Adam Kanaw, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. Well, welcome back to Chicago. You, did you did you just get um, did you travel in recently, like this past weekend? Or I came on Thursday. <laughs> we had a private event at the Driehaus Museum Friday night. Um, which was good. Uh, some of our guest list didn't make it, I guess, because of the rain, which oh. was kind of disappointing. Um, but uh, but it, we, we had a lot of people. It was still, it was really good. And then um, we're doing uh, our holiday party <laughs> at ACM next weekend. So I thought I'd just stick around. And my, my wife's family is here, so she's coming soon. So we'll just uh, hang out here till the end of the year, probably. That sounds pretty good. It sounds like you're getting to see a lot of people and, and do a lot of things, you know, that because you, know, you live in New York now. So, uh, yeah, it's good to come back. I mean, before COVID, I was coming back. I was spending about a week a month in Chicago, mm. which I think is the ideal amount because I need I really do need to be around. Um, otherwise, all these little people issues pop up with, with ACM, um, you know, but uh yeah, but uh hope I can get back to that. We'll see. I mean, this thing is just not going away, <laughs> you know, so. Right. Uh, I mean, it really has, you know, we thought it disrupted everything in 2020, but now looking into 2022, you're like, no, it's it's like permanently disrupted. It's here and uh, it's thriving. <laughs> yeah, and even if it went away tomorrow, I mean, there's some things that are just not going to go back, you know, mm. um, unfortunately, I, I, I you know. Um, or at least not in our generation, maybe the younger generation, you know, barely remembers COVID will grow up and be like, wow, it's really fun to go to parties, you know, but people our age, you know, half the people I know are like, I'm not going to go back to doing that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, 
It's pretty, it's pretty interesting how that's worked out. I mean, I, I've been seeing a lot of articles lately with the headlines of something like um, uh, people are quitting their jobs and not because of, you know, um, like for very serious reasons with career shifts or like, you know, headlines about um, people like repositioning themselves to try a new career direction or something because of the, what we've experienced the last two years. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'll see. A lot of that is good. You know, I mean, it's like, um, I always thought about that a lot. You know, the people that work in restaurants, the people that drive your lift, the people that do all of these things, you know, a lot of those jobs, I don't know that they were ever meant for you to work them for your whole life. <laughs> you know, they're like specifically meant to be done, you know, while you're transitioning or doing something else. But I mean, you know, for a while there, there were no other jobs because, you know, like, like where I'm from in Missouri, I mean, it was, you know, those jobs like McDonald's, Walmart, when I was a kid, they were for 16 year olds or, or for really old people who just wanted to get out of the house, you know? And then when I was a grown up, suddenly there were like 40 year old people and that was their main job because there wasn't anything else. I mean, so the labor market needed to be shaken up. There's no doubt about it. I mean, yeah. the, the corporations had almost all of the power, you know, and, uh, and I don't know, at this point, like, you know, I always talk to my dad about it because he's like really conservative, you know, um, not, not as much on the social side, but definitely on the fiscal side. And uh, and I'm always, you know, we actually agree on this. I'm like, we're giving up so much money right now in the government. Like, you know, you may as well just go the next step and do a universal basic income for God's sake, you know? And I was really surprised he agreed. He's like, yeah, at this point, you may as well. You're giving out, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. Like, what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm like, we may as well just go all the way because, you know, maybe it won't work, but we've never tried it. You know, uh, nobody's ever tried it. And in a country this large, oh my God, what an incredible experiment, you know? Um, worst case, yeah, everybody has money in healthcare. Ooh, gee, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the worst case is that there's massive inflation and everybody has money, but money is worthless. I, I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a weird scenario. I mean, because uh, on that scale, you know, a country of our size with as many people and like, like, yeah, what does that look like? And how does that pan out? Because I know, I know it's been done on smaller scales in like some cities or something. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what the results were or anything, but uh, I just know that it happened. I think that the, the, the basic assumption behind being against government handouts that, that people are inherently lazy is, is, you know, probably only 20% true. I mean, I think that the vast majority of people would prefer to spend their days doing something meaningful, you know, um, and if you didn't have to worry about having a roof over your head, if you knew you had that, you had the basics, you know, if God forbid I get cancer, I've got healthcare, you know, I've got a roof, I've got a bed and I've got heat <laughs> and I've got food then, you know, well, what do you do with your, you know, hopefully 70 plus years on this planet? I mean, that's a really interesting question, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I still think, you know, yeah, sure. Some people are just going to go, all right, awesome, man. I'm going to smoke weed all day, you know, but not as many <laughs> as people say, I think it would be, you know, a lot smaller. I think other people are going to be like, well, yeah, I need something now. I need something in the spiritual realm, on the creative realm, you know, in, in interpersonal relationship realm, like all of that. And uh, if you're not just hustling every single day to try to make ends meet, you know, we, we could pursue that. And that would be pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to, for that to ever happen, of course. I mean, it sounds like a, you know, 
uh, utopia, you know, because um, there's always people that are going to make money dividing other people, you know, or, or gain political power, et cetera. So it's just, uh, you know, not, when, when not everyone's acting in good faith, it's impossible to, to get anywhere. Yeah, it is. I, and that's the tricky thing, too. I mean, there's always going to be someone in the in the in the line somewhere where, like you said, acting in bad faith. You know, it's, it's like someone who could, you know, like universal basic income, for example, like could be proposed for a, a good reason by a good person. And then someone else down the line might use that as something different. Like, I don't know what that would look like or anything like that, but, you know, it comes into the hands of someone else who, who has nefarious, uh, mm-hmm. um, what do you say? Like reasons behind doing things. And then it, it shifts its, its initial p- purpose. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to think if people had time on their hands, I mean, how would that impact the arts? You know, I mean, the arts are, are, you know, first of all, it's generally a civilization that has a certain amount of leisure time in order to create the arts, right? I mean, you know, in the, in the really, really, really old days when it was relatively easy for us to gather food before we relied on agriculture, there's a lot of leisure time. So you start making ceramics, you start making cave paintings, you know, you make these things. Um, and then when we tied ourselves to the soil, it was a real beast, <laughs> you know, and those early agricultural societies were run by, it's called a hydroelectric despot. You know, you have a, a, a sort of a priest figure, you know, a pharaoh, a priest, and, and they control the water, they control the resources, and it's all based on, you know, it's divine order. God told us to do this, and your job is to build those pyramids and die when you're 25, <laughs> and my job is to sit up here and eat all the good food yeah. <laughs> and, and reap all the rewards, you know, and, and basically, like, that's what we've been ever since, you know, a non-egalitarian society. But, you know, nonetheless, even a non-egalitarian society, I mean, you know, with enough resources, if the, if, if the resources are vast enough, you, you have a leisure class, you know. Um, and of course, when you started to get merchants and blah, 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 you have time all of a sudden to create art. So like art has always been tied to leisure. It's always been tied to uh, a certain level of civilization. I mean, you know, I'm also I'm almost saying that there's an elitism tied into making art, you know, like inherently baked into the model. But there wouldn't be if everybody had equal amounts of leisure time. Like that would be, you know, and some people are just going to play golf, and other people are going to, you know, say, I don't know, maybe I'll take a classical music appreciation class. Maybe I'll take a, you know, I'll learn a language. Maybe I'll do something. I mean, especially if. You know, there's a bunch of other people going, you know, I've always wanted to teach a classical music appreciation class. I've always wanted to teach a Spanish class, but I never had time to because I was working 60 hours a week at Walmart. Um, You know, it's just a thought. But I mean, I'm always intrigued by it because, you know, it's like the final it would be the final level of a civilization that, that basically everybody could have X amount of time to devote to personal betterment. And, and mm-hmm. what would that look like? And some people would naturally want to offer resources and other people would naturally want to take advantage of those resources. Um, and some people would be both. But anyway, it's just something that, that uh, you know, and, and when we're in contemporary classical music, I think I think about this a lot because it's it's a product, so to speak, that hardly anybody ever thinks they want or, or knows anything about. Because um, at ACM, we always, we talk to, we've hired numerous consultants over the years. We get a grant to work with like an audience development consultant. And that's what they always say, who's your target market? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. There is no target market. I mean, you know, it's not composers. I'll tell you that. I mean, composers are super choosy about what concerts they go to and what concerts they don't go to. Um, it's, it's not necessarily people that know classical music because they think they don't like contemporary music. So, you know, my thought was always, 
those people, classical music people and composers slash performers are like 2% of the entire society. So what if we tried to get them out, you know, get this music out to 98% of the society, which is kind of what all of ACM's programs are designed to do. And then the consultants are like, well, I can't really help you with that. And I'm like, I know, it's not like, you know, I'm trying to reach 18 year old boys. This isn't Axe deodorant spray, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not promising you're gonna get girls. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is a different thing. I'm not promising you anything. I'm promising you, you're gonna sit through music that I can't even explain to you, <laughs> you know? And I can't even describe the experience. So why would anybody do it? Unless they had a ton of leisure time and they're like, ah, why not? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why not do it? Uh, so anyway, that's, that's all kind of related in my mind. Like what, you know, what are the per perfect circumstances under which somebody would go and, you know, take an hour or two of their lives and, and you know, expose themselves to unfamiliar music? Well, th this is uh, such a great tie in to our conversation about, you know, access and stuff like that, um, particularly with your with your uh, ensemble and everything. Um and the thing I think is interesting is like you with access to contemporary music, which uh, I think it would be great if you could uh, talk a little bit about that to explain people to people what that is. But um, you 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 do exactly what you said about where you uh, you provide resources, but you also use resources in order to create certain projects, which are all really fascinating. And I think that also ties into what you're saying about um, pursuing some things that you want to pursue. Um, like the 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 silent film uh, was a silent film festival, right? Mm -hmm. And then the Thirsty Ears Festival, I think are ingenious. I've never heard of anything like the Thirsty Ears Festival. I love that one. Um, and that's actually where we met, right? Um, but yeah, maybe if you could talk a little bit about access contemporary music, and then like maybe go into how um, how you make the time or find the time to even pursue these projects that you're interested in creating, um, you know, kind of like, uh, like the Thirsty Years Festival or something like that. Somebody just asked me that this morning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to somebody for this magazine called Classic Chicago. And she's uh -huh. like, how do you find time to do all of this? <laughs> and I was like, the answer is to do lists, you know, it's so stupid, but I have these little text documents, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just write all little things that have to be done. And then I organize them, you know, so uh, if Thirsty Ears Festival is coming up, there's all the Thirsty Ears things. <laughs> there's all my personal composing things. Um, there's stuff like, you know, do the dishes, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're building up. Come on. I mean, and I've just gotten very disciplined over the years at actually doing them. And then some, I, some just get kicked down onto the next to-do list, you know, like if it's a really tricky one, like tell so-and-so they can no longer do such and such, you know, and it's mm. like, oh, that gets kicked down a little bit, but, but eventually it gets done. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your first point, I was thinking about this all the time when I finished my master's degree in, in music composition and, um, you know, it was uh, out in the wide world and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, and just for me personally, you know, I didn't, um, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much done with school. That, that was fun. That was great. I mean, you know, but I paid for the master's degree myself, by which I mean, I'm still paying for my master's degree, you know? So I was like, yeah, I'm pretty well done. Um, you know, I'm not going to get a doctorate. And in Chicago at that time, and maybe still now, the only place to even get a doctorate was UC or Northwestern. Um, 
both of which are fantastic schools, but I personally didn't resonate with the, the aesthetic vibe at either place. So I was like, eh, I don't really want to leave Chicago either. Things were going pretty well here. So, um, you know, you start thinking, well, maybe I'll, I'll start something. And I was, I was looking at, uh, of course, Bang on a Can. This is, you know, 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. Um, ACM officially started in 2004. But, you know, looking at Bang on a Can, there was a group in Chicago called Cube at that time that was um, an ensemble doing mostly concerts at the Chicago Cultural Center. Um, ICE was still in Chicago at that time. They had started up and were mostly in Chicago. And 8th Blackbird, I mean, they were always kind of a model, but they were never in town. <laughs> you know, they were always touring. Um, but I was looking at all of that and thinking, you know, I want to do something, but it didn't come into focus what it was going to be for a long time. Um, cause I'm not a good enough piano player for it to be an ensemble centered around me. Um, and I'm definitely a composer. So I knew I wanted to get my music played, but I wasn't sure what else. And then I was really young and I wanted to make like some kind of mark. I wanted to make some really you know, I was really obsessed with doing something that would get a lot of attention at that time, which is sort of the opposite of how I am now. Um, now I'm, I'm very event specific. I'll promote an event that's coming up. I'll promote things. Um, but I'm pretty content to kind of, you know, just do my thing these days. But back then I was a, a glory hungry young 20 something. And so I came up with this idea. I thought it was so audacious. You know, it made me like, I, I always have this feeling anytime I have an idea, um, if, if I feel like it's just this audacious, ridiculous idea, I get this like kind of shiver and I go, okay, I have to do this. <laughs> so, um, I wrote my, my very first press release. I bought a book on how to write a press release. <laughs> and, uh, I wrote my first press release and said, uh, accessible contemporary music, as we were calling ourselves, will read a piece of music, read through and record a piece of music every week and post the recording to our website. And I sent it out to anybody I could think of, American Music Center, Meet the Composer, Society of Composers Incorporated, blah, 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 blah. Um, and to my terror, it got some, some uh, traction, you know, like uh, there was a really early article in the new music box about this project, like way back in like 2005 or something. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to do this now. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> I mean, what the hell have I gotten myself into? You know, so I went down to Guitar Center and bought a mini disc, which I still have. It's actually over in the um, supply closet here in the office. Um, bought a mini disc, bought this little mic, you know, and I uh, started actually like really practicing myself because I was going to need everybody, you know. And uh, myself and, and many of my friends, uh, many of the people who are still with ACM in some capacity today started to do this, to read a piece of music every week. And this is really where like, almost from the very beginning, I knew that ACM was going to play some of my music. We would do concerts, we'd play some of my stuff. But this weekly readings thing was the first time I started to think more holistically. I saw all of these people sending us scores. I mean, hundreds of people. And they were professors of music. They were people just starting out. They were all over the map. And I thought, oh my God, some of these people you know, have been performed a lot, et cetera, et cetera. And here they are. And we're just going to read the piece. You know, I just realized there was a lot of need out there. There's a lot of composers. Um, and, you know, the, the, the truth is really, if you're going to perform, well, first of all, you can't do that many concerts. I mean, even, even the most busy touring ensemble can't, I mean, they're not going to play more than what, 35, 40 pieces a year. I mean, because you normally you tour the same program. Um, so it's just, you know, you, and, and yet there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of composers. So you get where I'm going with this. I mean, the, the need outstrips the resources by so much that it's, it's not even funny. And it's really killing the field in many respects because so many composers 
say, you know what, it's not worth it. They throw in the towel and they get another job, move into another field. And we, in, in our infinite wisdom, instead of saying, oh, wow, these are the people who are now like, you know, some of them are in finance, some of them are making money, they, they should be well disposed towards our field. No, we ignore them. We say, oh, well, they're out of the game, you know, too bad for them. I'm still in the game. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's a shame. I always thought that was such a huge untapped resource, you know, that the, the thousands and thousands of people with music comp degrees that aren't necessarily doing anything with them. Um, but anyway, that, that really hit me. I, I couldn't believe how, how much need there was for this. And so I, I started thinking, yeah, we can't perform many pieces by many composers, but how can we, how can we create as many resources as possible? We can do readings. That's one thing we can do. You can at least hear your ideas brought to life. And we're not doing the weekly readings anymore. I, I kept that going for longer than you would think, like six years or something before, you know, finally I got married. My wife was like, this is ridiculous. You're killing yourself on this program. You know, like lots of things happened, you know, life it really intervened in many respects, but we're still doing the same thing. We have a series in Manhattan called Concept Lab, where we invite composers to submit works in progress. I mean, we're still really, really committed to allowing you to, um, to experiment in real time with very talented musicians and for the audience to kind of see the creative process exposed. That's something I've been really, really fascinated by. And that was part of the original idea behind calling ourselves accessible. We were making ourselves accessible to composers to fulfill this need, hopefully, but we were also wanting to make the creative process and what composers do, this mysterious black dots on paper thing that we do, accessible to a larger group of people outside of the, 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 the field. Um, and that's really informed everything that we've done. I mean, ever since then. So these big questions about, you know, resources and about who is this music for? Why do we write it? Is, these are the questions that ACM wanted to answer. I mean, they're, they're huge, big questions, you know. And that's another thing I, I, I tell people that, that we talk to. It's like, I'm well aware that this, you know, will last beyond my lifetime. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like I'm going to be on my deathbed going, I did it. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just not, I mean, but you know, I was just saying to someone on Friday, cause a lot of people there didn't know anything about contemporary classical music. We did this private event at the Treehouse Museum, music that I wrote inspired by the museum. And I said to somebody, you know, she's like, well, what is all this contemporary classical? It doesn't even make any sense. I'm like, I know it's an oxymoron, right? I mean, you know, but, uh, people will always play the violin. Do you believe that? She says, yes, people will always play the violin, always. So, well, then people will always write for the violin. And she's like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I try to boil it down, you know, because I don't want to get bogged down into like how I differ from Mozart or something, you know? I mean, it's just like, you know, think about it for a second. I, I grew up with cars around me, television. I, I mean, my sound world is completely different. I mean, let's not even talk about talent level. I'm not a, I'm not a genius, but, you know, <laughs> just sheer background. You know, there's no way anybody could truly sound like that, you know, because mm -hmm. when he walked out the front door, he heard very different sounds than we hear and had a very different uh, world and, and very different intentionality than, than we have. I mean, so anyway, all of that is my long way of saying that, you know, I, I started ACM uh, to try and wrestle with these big problems. And so like the Thirsty Ears Festival is uh, Chicago's only classical music street festival. And we do a lot of contemporary because we are who we are. But one of my realizations is just that, you know, Americans are, are by and large wonderful people, but their musical literacy level is very low. Mm. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, 
well, there were two thoughts. One is we may as well just have regular classical. And the second thought was, I actually do want to tie Steve Reich back to Mozart. I do think that there's an outgrowth there, you know. Um, a lot of times composers, you know, we, especially in the, you know, the Pierre Belez driven era, we're really, really eager to cut ourselves off from the past. Like, like, you know, like we had no past and that's absurd. I mean, you know, and it's not helpful to the field. I don't think either. That's a really good point. And it's interesting the way you put it uh, about the musical illiteracy in America. Cause I recently, uh, a few years ago, I read the savvy musician, um, was that David Cutler? I think his name is. Mm -hmm. And I reread it. I, I've been rereading it again recently. And there's one spot, there's two sections where he says the problem is titled like the problem with classical music. And then there's another section titled the problem with pop music or mainstream music, whatever you want to call it. And, and one of the points he made is exactly that is that because we have these three minute short mainstream pieces of music that only allow so much time for anything to happen, um, and the language is just boiled down to just these, this simple formula. Uh, that's not to say that the formula isn't good or anything, but, um, mm -hmm. that that doesn't allow the opportunity for the general public to be as versed in anything more complex than that three minute song or something <clears throat> to your point. Well, and it's all poll driven to us. I'm mean, not poll. They don't, they don't, you know, survey people and ask them what kind of music they like. But, you know, I mean, it, pop music has gotten bassier and bassier in the last 20 years. Because, yeah, it has. Because you know, <laughs> it creates this visceral response, you know, and, and, and beats, in my humble opinion, have gotten simpler and simpler. Uh, I mean, half the time it's just douche, 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 you know, you're like, oh my God. I mean, what kind of musical simpletons are we, you know? Right, right. And you, you hear that, and then you go, and this is some Afro-Cuban music. You're like, ah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I understand it's it's confusing to hear those really complex beats, but it's also fun and liberating not to know what's happening, you mm -hmm. know. And I just I, I don't know. And music has gotten so boxed up, you know, and and it just kind of um, it's a bummer. I mean, there's really no function for music in our society anymore except to dance, you know, or to you know. Um, cover things up as background. And it's usually dance music, weirdly. You walk into like a sushi place at noon and they're playing, you know, like electronica. <laughs> I'm like, no, this music is intended. You're supposed to be on drugs in a club, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not having lunch in a sushi bar. Let's think about this. Like, what's the intentionality behind this music? No, we don't know. It's just what's hip, so we throw it on. Nobody thinks right, of that, right. you know? And, and it's just, it is very frustrating. I mean, for people that think about music all the time. And, and when you know, I mean, I know like people in film think about this too. You think, you know, you, you can watch a really bad Western, you know, or you can watch, you know, some really big superhero film, or you can watch, you know, an action film that's made by a master. And there's a big difference. I mean, you know, uh, I think of Westerns because I just watched Jane Campion's new movie. It's on Netflix, um, Power of the Dog last night. And it's just this rich, amazing movie that completely reinvents the genre, you know, mm. and I mean, it goes into like Brokeback Mountain territory to a certain extent. It's, it's a, but it's a, revenge piece it's just this incredible like really rich film and i think gosh i wish more people would watch this it's so much better than watching you know rawhide or something i mean <laughs> where it's just like you know the tough guy against the world you know it's like that, that's obviously been a very hurtful motif for this country um one but two i mean it's just so much more interesting when all of the characters are fleshed out you know i mean um but it's the same in music anyway go on no, no, um, I was just going to ask, is that, that's the one with Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, crazy. 
I saw the trailer. It looked very interesting. He's totally unrecognizable. Yeah. (laughs) And he's the bad guy, but you get it. I don't know. It's so well done. It's so well done. But I feel the same way about music or literature too. It's just like some of this stuff is, it takes time. It's not easy, but it's worth it. I mean, I, I, you know, and that's like what I'm always, how do you say that to people? And, And then if you're, if you're, specifically marketing this music to people that don't know anything about it. That was something we were always trying to say, like, how would you say this in a poster that this is going to be some weird shit, but it's worth it. <laughs> like, how do you, you know, how do you say that in a poster, in a flyer, in a, in a Facebook ad, you know, something that somebody, the, the, the ad is targeted to them because, you know, they went to see something at the music box theater or, you know, like they, they've expressed interest in fine art in other realms, you know? And so we think, Hey, you know, if you like this, you might like, that you know maybe you'll come to something that we're doing but i find it very difficult to package up what we do in any kind of meaningful way you know and 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 basically at the end of the day it's like you can't you just need to build trust with people and say like i can't you know decide i can't tell you what this is i mean we did a whole concert of music we commissioned that was made to uh, to be played inside the piano only inside and then we put it on the, put the piano on, on a stage in a movie theater, the Davis Theater in Lincoln Square. And we put cameras inside and we mic'd it up like crazy, all these little contact mics inside the piano. So everybody could see what was happening inside the piano, all the sounds reverberating through the theater. And, you know, the, the 80 or 90 people who were there really, really loved it. Um, but it was one of those things like, I mean... I'm looking at the poster now, like how <laughs> we were trying to just describe this to people, you know, like music only inside the piano. Why? And I, you know, so basically what I said was, haven't you always wanted to put your head inside a piano? <laughs> and people were like, no, but it's uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. you know? Sounds kind of interesting. I'm like, come put your head in a piano with 80 other people, which now after COVID, who wants to do that? But, you know, but before, you know, it kind of worked. Um, but mostly what works with concerts is partnering with cocktails, you know, Get a couple of drinks, people are there. Yep, yep. Get a drink. Come on in. (laughs) But it's something I'm obsessed with. I've been thinking about it for 20 years. Like, how do you actually package up what we do without changing what we do, mind you? I mean, you know, I'm still going to play, we're still going to program an Olga Neuwirth or some, you know, European modernism, whatever we want. I mean, it's, you know, I want to stretch the audience. Um, And there are plenty of people out there willing to be stretched. But, you know, it's the age old question. How do you reach them? That's exactly it. It's something that I think about quite a bit as well. Um, it's it's really it's really great to hear you say that you're you're constantly in, in conflict with that question because uh, given given what you've done with access contemporary music, uh, from my perspective, it would be like this seems like a guy who who knows the answer to that question, and that's not a criticism either. That's like that's like uh, it's it's like a reassurance to know that. If you don't know, you can still uh, make something happen. The funny thing, I mean, whatever, I, I wonder if other people would say this. I think so. But whenever something starts to work, it feels like the world changes, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we, we've done, 
hugely successful concerts. And then like the mortgage crisis happens in 2009 and we have to pivot as an organization and we're rebuilding, you know, and, and those, the, the series we were doing at the Davis, I mean, we, we had so many things against us in, in retrospect because we could only afford the theater on a Monday night. Um, and it was always like the Monday after the Super Bowl or like, you know, like Mondays like that, like the, the least desirable night for the theater is what they would give us. And yet we were consistently getting a hundred people by the time, you know, when COVID hit. And, um, and it was so fun because it was this space where you could do anything. I mean, we, we really felt like, you know, we had the resources to move a piano in to the theater and, and we could do anything from, you know, machine language as concert inspired by clocks, gears, mechanisms, all kinds of things like that, to specific gravity, music and physical sciences, to the in, inner worlds inside the piano. Um, I mean, we were just having, I was having, you know, myself as the, as the artistic uh, mind behind it was having so much fun dreaming up these concerts, you know, and, uh, and now you're like, well, I don't know what the future of that will be. Um, but I mean, you know, the, uh, by the same token, during COVID, we thought, okay, we, the goal is still the same, right? I mean, it's still, you know, well, first of all, you got to make sure everybody's okay. I mean, like everybody, we laid low for a few months and just made sure our people are okay and our audience is okay. But once you, you knew that people were, were mainly just bored, you know, it was like, okay, it's time to start serving our mission again. And that was where, you know, the Relevant Tones radio show that I used to do, I had been talking to the board forever about making that an ACM project. And they were never super interested because the Davis Theater was going well. We already had so much going on. And, you know, we're going, oh, wow, we need some digital media programs. And I'm like, well, I do have this award-winning radio show, you know, with 300 back episodes. Like, I've been wanting to make it a podcast for ACM. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm like, oh, my God, I've been talking about it for years, you know? So we started doing um, different podcasts. And we did, like, an event with uh, with a couple composers, uh, myself, Natalie Joachim, David T. Little, um, Karen Tanaka, and then uh, on the performer side, uh, it was Nick Fotino Sancello and his wife, Yasuko Oro, on piano. And they, they pre-recorded everything. And we did this conversation, you know, very much like we were doing at the Davis, where you had a, a larger theme, in this case, narrative. I'm always fascinated, you know, like that, that Brahms versus Wagner thing of, you know, the, the absolute music people versus program music people, right, yeah. uh, which is you know, a conversation we still have today. Um, so it, it, should there be narrative in music? Is there narrative in music? Is there such a thing as, as uh, you know, complete music that has no narrative? I don't think so because people always put a narrative on it, <laughs> you know. Um, so we brought in a, a novelist and uh, chatted about narrative and, and you know, featured music by the composers uh, performed by Nick and Yasuko, and it was really, really successful. I mean, so the answer, I guess, is that you know, the, the central part of it is always the same. We want to package this up in an interesting way. Um, and, and bring people in who, who are hearing this music for the first time or, or are saying, wow, I didn't know there were so many composers out there. That's amazing. And the breadth of you know, music is, is incredible. Um, but the, the means, the way that we do it changes every five to six years, just by virtue of the fact that the world is, is constantly you know, evolving in, in unforeseen ways. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It, it sounds like you're sort of uh, talking about the, the mission statement or, or I don't know if that'd be a vision statement. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the, the, you know, for us right now, we're always, every organization's always screwing around with their mission and vision, you know, but our, our mission is essentially to, uh, to bring musical creativity to life every day. Like that's really 
that's what it is. I mean, you know, we used to say to define classical music as a living art form, but I've kind of been backing away from the term classical. Um, it just doesn't quite define all the stuff that we do. And it feels limiting in a way. And, you know, um, I, I would use the word classical and I try to always tell people, use it the same way that you would use the word tape or radio, you know, don't be so pedantic as to assume that radio only refers to an actual device that captures broadcast waves, you know, radio is now podcasts and it's all sorts of, you know, so classical should evolve in that same way when you're talking about music. But um, yeah, and our, and our vision is really a, a world in which everyone has access to high quality um, creative music and also the ability, because that's a really important thing, the ability to create music themselves too. Um, you know, we all know that, that historically and, and currently the, this music is practiced mostly by people with resources, you know, and that's something that we are all looking at right now. Like, uh, why is it so damn expensive to become a master cellist? <laughs> you know, why is it so expensive to become a composer? You have to go to all these freaking summer festivals and, you know, they go to the right school, quote unquote, da, 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 da. I mean, you look at the number of people that, that won you know, the big awards in the last 20 years and, and, you know, a shockingly high number of them came from wealthy environments. And that's something that we're all thinking about. So that's something ACM is trying to deal with too. Like really, um, if, if, if you're talking about bringing musical creativity to life every day, well, by whom and for whom, you know? Mm. And, and so that's, that's something that we're looking at a lot, but yeah, the, I mean, and, and this digital revolution, whatever you want to call it is, uh, you know, I mean, I personally can't wait to get back to doing, live events and, and, you know, worrying that the attendance is too small. Um, like I used to in the past, instead of worrying that attendance is too large, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, but the, the digital thing gives us so much power too. I mean, it's really, I think going to be a, a very valuable thing. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, that's really funny how you said before about the uh, relevant tones and how the board finally got uh, got on board with the idea <laughs> because of the situation sort of it, it called for it. Um, yeah, that was it entirely. I mean, everything became, you know, for everyone, it was the same, you know, you're, you're going, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to, you know, do these collaborative pieces where everybody records their part with a click track and some, some poor schmuck has to edit it all together, mm -hmm. you know, or we're going to do this or that. And, and for us, even the street festival in 2020 was, was, uh, too risky one and two, the city wasn't giving street closure permits. Um, so instead we did it as a audio walking tour of, uh, the, the street festival happens in Chicago's Ravenswood neighborhood, which just by like sheer luck, happens to be this super historic neighborhood. Um, Louis Sullivan's last building is in the neighborhood. Carl Sandburg wrote Chicago poems in the neighborhood. Um, you know, there's a, Chicago's first and, and only still standing wood frame church is in the neighborhood. The, um, gosh, it goes on and on. The Globe, the Harlem Globetrotter started in the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, no, it's insane, man. It's completely insane. So I was like, oh, this is awesome, you know? So we uh, we commissioned composers to write music inspired by these different spaces mm -hmm. and then worked with a tech company called Gesso to make an, well, they already had made the app, but to use their app. Um, so you, you'd stand in front of the space and there, you know, somebody would tell you about it. There, there, there's also a Ravenswood Historical Society that helped us identify the places and, um, they voiced some of the uh, the narratives too. And then you'd hear from the composer, I always really liked Carl Sandburg and blah, 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 you know? And then you hear this one minute piece of music. Uh, so it was really popular and it was a way, because again, you know, it, it goes back to this 
we can't do thirsty ears in person. We can't do it the way we did it. But that's always a limiting way of thinking. You know, um, that's okay. What is the goal of thirsty ears? What is the, the point? You know, and it's it's to bring classical music to new people and to celebrate our community. Well, we can still do that. I mean, that's you know, that's a really important thing for anybody as a composer or if you're running an organization or both. We get hung up sometimes on the means, and we forget about the fact that you, you can, you know, as long as you're drawing breath, you can always do what you meant to do. You just have to go back to what was the original mission. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because then you're coming from a place of like, like, yeah, asking that question, well, why did you start doing this in the first place? Like so, something that I imagine a lot of musicians get, like, will revisit the question is like, what made you want to be in music? Or like, yeah. why did you start playing the violin? you know, from day one, as opposed to where you are now, because it's definitely not to be playing these etudes or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or is it to play the Nutcracker, you know? Right, right. 45 times every season. Right, know? exactly. I mean, we both, I'm sure, have a lot of friends who are pit musicians, you know, and uh, I mean, you know, I know, I, th I think we have to always, performers, composers, uh, always constantly ask ourselves, because I think the question for or the answer for all of us, why did you get into this is more or less the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing else made me feel like that. You know, uh, when you heard music, classical music, pop music, whatever it was, you know, you just said, yeah, that's for me. <laughs> you know, I feel that, that uh, I just left my body. That is amazing. And I want to feel that way. And I want to share that feeling with other people. I mean, I've heard some version of that from so many musicians all through my life. That's, I think, what got us into it. Um, but it's hard to sustain over, you know, the decades. So how, how do you, and this could even be a specific question to you, Seth, uh, how do you take that and then turn it like that, you know, answering that question why you're in music and then turn it into like a, um, I guess that's the mission statement or like, or how do I say this? Like present it in a way where people want to, um, I guess you could say like purchase what you're selling, right? Like, does that make sense? I don't know if I'm saying that well. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, I mean, when I was in radio, when I've been in front of an audience, whatever, I, I, I've definitely had the chance to notice that, that what people respond to is always passion. I mean, you know, I could stand up in front of you and talk about fuller brushes and people would be so bored. Like what, <laughs> you know, these are for like cleaning chimneys or whatever. That's insane. Um, but if I love these brushes <laughs> like more than anything, and I'm telling you why I love them and I am just like so passionate about it, you'll be like, all right, this dude's weird, but I respond to that passion, <laughs> you know? <laughs> now, luckily with music, it's not fuller brushes. It's like a lot more, you know, holistic and amazing um, and interesting, but, you know, but the number one thing I think is passion. I mean, and, you know, just to be quite frank, I think that music school just sucks the passion out of you as quickly as possible. I mean, it's remarkable, you know, um, Roman numerals are, are a, a valid way of analyzing music, but it, it doesn't do anybody any good. <laughs> I mean, not really, you know, I mean, like, I, I think about that all the time. I mean, I suppose like if you're playing the blues or you're playing di diatonic music, it's helpful, but going through a Mozart sonata and writing the Roman numerals underneath it, which we all spent hours and hours and hours of our lives doing, I'm still trying to think what that actually did for me. I mean, now after being a musician for so long and, 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 you know, I think it was Beethoven who was always talking about, 
music was a religion for him because the, the more he studied it, the more he got into it, the more he was always discovering, like right up until the end. And it's, and it's true. I mean, you just, you hear music so differently. And I never think about Roman numerals anymore. That's a two chord. That's a such and such. I do think in terms of function, you know, there, there's, I still think in terms like almost a Shankarian kind of, you know, there is still a, don, a dominant, there's a tonic in, 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 uh, tonal music. Um, and then things are either away from it or, or, or near it or, 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 you know, a subdominant kind of role. I still think that way. I mean, um, but I don't really think, you know, because, because that's still, you, you can still change keys and, and think about it that way. But with Roman numerals, you can't really. Um, so anyway, my point is just that, I mean, it, it's something that the first step is maintaining your passion over the decades. Even if you went to music school, even if you sat in the pit forever, even if, you know, uh, God, you play piano in restaurants like I used to do and had to play piano, man, you know, every night. And everybody asks you if you know it, like they're the first person to ask you, you know, <laughs> you know like, oh, oh, I might have heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah, I know it. It's also in every single fake book. So like, you know, don't right. act like it's such a weird thing to ask. Um, you know, so the first step is to maintain the passion. And then the second is really like, with whom are you sharing it? Because I think that's another thing that's really Interesting. I mean, for me, everything that came, I mean, I, I feel very lucky as a composer that, that everything I've ever written has been played. Um, you know, even, even my opera, I'm, I'm reasonably certain I'll be able to produce at some point. Like, I just feel um, that I'm very lucky in that respect. But that's come out of relationships. That's come out of being passionate about music and going to concerts and talking to people and, and you know, and, and, and playing on people's, I'll play on your thing, you play on mine, you know, and just really creating this community. I mean, that you know, everything that happened with ACM came from that spirit. And so I, I can't stress that enough, you know, and then in terms of sharing it with people outside of the field, you know, so, so basically the first thing is maintain your passion. The second thing is be able to produce a product in the first place, which requires a community. And then the third thing is, I, I think that we have to talk about music the way that, that we talked about it when we first discovered it, no matter how much we know about it, if you stand up in front of somebody and talk about a retrograde inversion, it's kind of boring, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, so we have to convey passion. And, and then, you know, if people want to go deeper, I'm happy to go deeper. I do lectures for the Grant Park Music Festival. I mean, I, I you know, have this whole side business talking about music. <laughs> um, and I'm definitely happy to tell you, you know, I, I gave a piano lesson to this woman one time and she's playing a Mozart sonata. And she says, why do I respond to this piece so well? And I was like, oh my God, it's, it's the chain of fits, you know? And she had no idea what that was. So <laughs> I start talking about that. She gets really interested, you know, and, and she went deeper. Um, like, yeah, we, we are actually hardwired to respond to that. Every human, every human being, regardless of culture, uh, they may not use it the way Mozart did. I'm not saying that German music is superior. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that this is hardwired into nature and we all respond to uh, the harmonic series. And she found that so interesting, you know, but I mean, if, if you're talking to people and trying to get them to buy your CD, you know, they want to support you. They want to support your passion and they want to support your community. I mean, so those are the things I think are the most important. That's incredibly succinct. Um, I, I love the way you laid that out too. Uh, like it, it, it makes me think back to what we were saying earlier about the challenge of finding your audience. And like when you talk to the, uh, what was it, like a marketing firm or something and they were asking you like, well, who's your audience? And, and you know, and you're like, yeah, we're, we're always kind of searching and figuring that out. But um, I think that's one of the big challenges that uh music this has been talked about a bunch of times on the podcast but it's it's worth you know going over is like how it's not uh, music school doesn't provide that 
aspect of, you know, it's, it's really good at providing the craft of being a musician and not great at providing how to actually market that craft and make a living from it. Right. I mean, I, I always argue and maybe, you know, I used, I'm usually alone on this, but I don't know that music school should necessarily teach you that. I mean, you know, music as a, as a, as a science, as a field of endeavor, um, you know, which is the way that the university system thinks about it. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't think that music school is perfect by any means, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, it can really just suck your passion dry and become so analytical and this, that, and the other. But I mean, you know, that's kind of, I mean, the university hasn't changed that much since it first opened in, in Boulogne or, or, you know, or, or in Paris. I mean, it's, it's very much meant to foster this kind of um, study. And, and so, you know, I, I think that that's okay. I just think that they should be more honest about people, that that's what it is. I mean, I knew so many like rock guitarists, for example, who'd go into music school and be like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> and mm-hmm. drop out. And it's like, yeah, I don't think that you should go to music school, you know? And, and, uh, I, I think, I mean, you know, for like the, a, a violinist is that, you know, some of them want to be an orchestra, but not all of them do, but it's really geared towards getting you an orchestra job, which is of course getting harder and harder to do. And then they throw them in the theory class. And a lot of them are like, don't you want to be there? I, I, what does this have to do with anything? It's like, well, you know, nobody explained to you that you're a better player if you understand this music holistically, because they just, they're too busy having you write Roman numerals without telling you the larger picture. You right, know? right, right. That's where it, being a composer really, really helps you because when you have to utilize these tools, you, re- you, know, you start to learn about it. And it becomes intuitive and you don't think about, you know, the Aeolian mode is, you know, blah, 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 steps up. And, you know, you just, it's a sound, it's a sound palette that you can use when you need it. Same as, you know, a a Neapolitan second or whatever. I've never think of it that way, but, you know, um, and it never becomes intuitive for a lot of performers because they just throw them in theory class without any kind of explanation. You know, everybody knows why they're in ear training class, but nobody knows why they're writing Roman numerals. I mean, so like, I think that, that music school just within what it is could be better, but as far as teaching you how to be a musician and how to have a career, that's a separate thing that I think should exist separately from, from music school. Um, because it's, it's, it's very, very important. Um, but what you're paying for in a conservatory is to become the best, you know, fiddler or composer you can be. Um, and that's really where they, their, their responsibility, as far as they're concerned ends, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, and I get that I I'm okay with that. I just think they should be honest about it, you know, and, and say, you're going to want to also do this. You're going to want to also take these classes. You're going to want to also, you know, have some other experience. Now I will also say though, that that's one whole little <laughs> bucket, but, uh, uh, fewer and fewer people are going to college anymore anyway. I mean, there's all these amazing Skillshare sites now, you know, you, you can, you can learn logic online now from, from somebody, you know, it costs you a, a fraction of going to audio production school, you know, violin's not quite the same and it's always going to help you to work with somebody who's in a major symphony or has those connections. So music school will have some advantages, but universities in general are facing declining enrollment. And, Mm. you know, so I do think that just, just for their own sheer survival, they might want to think about dropping some of the, you know, white, uh, what do you call it? The, the, um, you know, the, on the Hill (laughs) academic, you know, tower, white tower, ivory tower, there it is, ivory tower Mm. on the Hill mentality. Um, They might want to drop that and start to, you know, say that, that there are real practical advantages to, to going to school, but, you know, we'll see, they, they probably won't. That, that makes so much sense. Um, 
and a really good point too about what school is and what it isn't. And I think I, I think I agree with you on that, where after, after going through school and, and the separate training of how to actually turn it into like a business and stuff, because um, I mean, any sort of thing that you try to learn, whether it's a trade or a skill set or um, a concept or whatever, like you essentially have to sort of learn that thing in a vacuum in order to understand it. Like you said, if you want to be like a master on that thing, right? Like if you're learning uh, carpentry or something, if you want to be the best carpenter, then you're not going to be learning how how should you be posting on a website to sell your your work, you know? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to resources too, what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation. I mean, you know, the people who can go to music school and not have to work a job and and spend, you know, six hours a day in the practice room it's, it's a small percentage of the overall field. And those are the ones who generally go on and do well, because that's what you need. I mean, that's absolutely what you need. You know, of course, talent is another thing that has to be considered. But I mean, what, what also needs to be considered is that, that you need to just focus. And that's what the university system is supposed to provide is what they excel at. But the truth is, it's inherently unequal because not everybody can do that. I mean, some people have to take out loans. Some people have to, you know, um, yeah, work. They have to do things. It's, it's, um, and, and that to me is, is something that we should all be thinking about. I mean, what happens if everybody has the resources they need to devote the energy and, and spend the time that they have the way that they want to? I mean, I don't know, but it, it seems like there'd be a lot less violence. It seems like there'd be a lot less uh, anguish. I mean, you know, and, and it's not going to work for everyone. Some people, you know, there are mental health issues. There are a lot of other things that have to be considered. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but going back to resources, I mean, you know, the, the music school exists as what, what it's supposed to be is a place to just get your head right and, and hit the woodshed and learn everything that you possibly can. And I would say that for all, you know, for law school, for medical school, whatever. Um, but but the, the, the ugly truth is, that that is a luxury that not everyone can afford sure yeah yeah there, uh, that's very true um i think a lot of a lot of things like like one one thought that often comes to mind when i think about in lieu of going to college is just trying to find a private instructor to mm-hmm. like if you want to learn how to compose like you don't necessarily have to go to college to do that although obviously the resources of a college and university is significant but to develop the craft um i mean there are even college professors who probably teach privately outside of the college and, and could offer that service and skill set to people where, where yeah. it would be a fraction of the cost. I mean, absolutely. You know, and again, it goes back to what you want to do. You know, if, if you want to, you want to be Andrew Bird, you want to play violin and sing, you know, yeah, he dropped out of Northwestern. There really wasn't, you know, what, what, what was there at Northwestern that he wasn't already doing yeah. at, a, at a very high level, you know, just to use one example. Um, or, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to play chamber music, I mean, that's a very specific thing. You know, you're going to need to learn all kinds of things, a very different kind of technique, but what you're really going to need to do is, is learn how to hustle and gig, you know? Um, I, you know, so yeah, I think a lot of it is, is, you know, what, what you want to do and, and then asking yourself really where is the best place to go to learn that and it may or may not be music school this kind of makes me think what was one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges you faced when you finally left when you you know went through graduate school and then you were in like the professional musician workforce right like what was one of the things that you it took you a while to sort of like 
um, understand exactly, like talk about resources here, right? So like how to pursue certain resources or like that you, you didn't previously know. <laughs> um, well, you know, no matter what field I had gone into, I would have faced the same problem, you know, which is that uh, I, I always was going to go to college. I couldn't wait. <laughs> I mean, I could not wait. I, I loved it. I, I loved it. You know, the, the biggest problem I had in undergrad was I couldn't focus. I was always taking these classes because uh, I think, you know, I went to state school, so University of Missouri. And so the, I'm pretty sure that the tuition was set after a certain amount, you know, so like 16 hours, 16 credit hours cost the same as 14, you know. And so in my stupid mind, I was like, awesome, I can take this, you know, Byzantine art history class for free, <laughs> you know. So like, I was doing that every semester, taking all these classes, because I just loved it. And, and, uh, and sometimes I kick myself, I think oh, I should have gotten the DMA, you know, and, and tried to get a university gig, because then I could take classes for free. <laughs> <laughs> and I like part of me just really loves that environment. I mean, I love being in a class. I, I love learning. I love being around people who are learning. Um, and, and, and it almost doesn't matter what I'm learning. I, I'm interested in so many different things. So like, yeah, leaving school in the first place, um, even though I said I was definitely done with school after the master's degree, which is true. But if, if money weren't a factor for me, I probably would have stayed in school forever. I mean, that is, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> I'd just be a lifelong student, you know? Uh, they'd be like, oh, there's that independently wealthy guy who's like just learning everything. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of my, my stuff was just motivated by the fact that I had always worked. I worked through undergraduate, I worked through graduate school. I had a full-time gig uh, doing IT for a, a, tech, a tech company when I was in grad school at Roosevelt. You know, so like that was just always there in the background, you know? So for me, it was like, well, I, I'm not going to do a DMA because I just am so tired of working and going to school, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and then I, the second thing is that I was always confused. And I, I kind of wanted to mention this earlier that, that um, not everybody takes a straight path, you know? Like I knew a lot of people that just wanted to be a violinist, man, boom, and they did it. Or my friend, Francesco Miliotto, wanted to be a conductor. I mean, just, you know, anything that didn't advance him as a conductor, he wasn't interested in doing. He's just, I'm going to be a conductor. And he is. He's this, you know, really successful conductor now. Um, but I was never like that. I, I really, you know, again, it goes back to being interested in a lot of things and, and just being kind of a late bloomer and being generally, you know, I, I also had this kind of, I think I grew up with a, a mother who was very supportive of me. So I always had this like, you know, everything works out for me mentality, <laughs> which in retrospect was like really dangerous, you know, like, ah, oh, you know, I'll, I'll drop out of school for a while. I'll come back to it. Everything works out for me. It'll be fine. <laughs> you know, like just this, I really was kind of out of it. I, I mean, I look back at my twenties and think like, I can't believe I even got my pants on straight every day, you know? Um, so, um, so when I got out of grad school, I was 20, uh, probably eight, uh, 20, maybe 29. Cause I took some time off in between. I think I was 28. And so, yeah, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was trying to kind of do everything simultaneously. Like maybe I, I can be a, a pianist. Well, what kind of pianist? Well, I don't really know. So like, I'll play some classical with these guys, but I'll also play, you know, I, I had a wedding band for like three years. I'll also play in restaurants. I mean, I, everything was just very fuzzy, you know, I'll compose. Well, what kind of music? I don't really know. You know, I, I played in theaters, the uh, uh, improv comedy. I was at the Annoyance Theater. Uh, 
um, mostly do it playing for all their student shows. Um, so it was fun because you could just make up whatever you wanted, you know. Um, I had to like kind of you know move the 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 um, the play forward in some way, but they were making everything up too, you know. So it was like sometimes they were following me, sometimes I was following them. It was a lot of fun, but I was doing all of that, and it wasn't until uh, later that I, I started to really focus and think like, what is it that I want to do? Um, musically, you know, and I decided, settled on, I really want to compose concert music. Um, but that's like kind of the hardest thing to settle on, you know, like if I settled on film music, at least there's a pathway. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to, to answer your question, I mean, professionally, like I always had to work. So that wasn't such a big deal. I knew I had to get out of this IT thing and stop doing corporate. I wanted to do music. Um, and, and I've always been a good teacher. So I kind of fell back on that, you know, so I, I started teaching at an institution in Chicago called the Old Town School of Folk Music. Um, and I taught uh, piano to little kids and to grownups for, I think I was there for six years. Um, and I was simultaneously really trying to get ACM off the ground at the same time too. So, so I, I graduated in 2002. We say that ACM officially started in 2004 when I started, well, we, we incorporated. So from a legal perspective, that's when we started and we got our first board and I became the executive director. And then we started our first program, Weekly Readings. So although we've been using the name in years past, that's when we really like became a thing. And then in 2005, I started the Sound of Silent Film Festival. And by 2007, I had started the music school, which is now, you know, 65, 70% of our budget. Um, so somewhere in there, you know, 2008, 2009, I was transitioning out of running the Old Town School, or running, ha, um, <laughs> teaching at the Old Town School and transitioning into running ACM. But I was still teaching mostly at ACM from like 2008 or nine until 2012. Uh, the vast majority of my income through ACM came from teaching. You know, so yeah, being a piano teacher was really my bread and butter with gigs on the side in the theater world um, with this wedding band. And not we weren't a jobbing band, but um, I was the one who found our gigs. Like I was always the one who did the hustling in any group that I was in, you know, that was like, everyone's like, well, Seth will get the gigs for us. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll get the gigs. <laughs> so I got the gigs, you know, and I even remember like a, early on with ACM, um, uh, Laura Copletengis who, who started it with me. She was only with ACM for a few years. Um, and this pianist, I can't remember his name now, um, we were talking about doing something and John, the pianist, that's his name, I can't remember his last name, but he says, uh, so what's Seth's role in all of this? And uh, Laura goes, Seth's the guy who like makes it all happen, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much, it's been my role, um, you know? So I, I guess, you know, for me, getting out of school wasn't that traumatic because I knew I was going to work. What was traumatic was losing that warm, fuzzy, awesome environment, you know, I mean, just like going down to the orchestra rehearsal and grabbing a violinist and be like, hey, would you, would you uh, play some of this for me later? You know, like just having that, those resources. I've always wanted that. I wanted to have that back <laughs> and I wanted to have other, I wanted to let other people have it too. That's really at the heart of ACM was how can we get this again, where there are cellists walking around and clarinetists and violinists and all these wonderful people and they're up for playing, you know, I mean, we want to pay them, everybody's paid. We're trying to get everything to be, you know, perfect in that regard. But, but at the end of the day, what it's all about is this place where creativity can, can thrive. That's amazing. I love how you, 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 uh, you worded it there by relating it back to the university setting, you know, where the, the, 
the resources of, of your colleagues and stuff are all there, but then translating it into the world where we're all no longer in that, in that sort of bubble, right? Like the, the university bubble. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I mean, you know, so like in one of our schools on Ravenswood, uh, on Wilson, where we do the Thirsty Ears Festival, um, you know, we, during COVID, we remodeled it and put a coffee shop in. And like the mugs have living composer names, living composers on them. So like Augusta Reed Thomas, Clarice Assad, Erilyn Wallen. I mean, you know, all, all these people, Julius Eastman, well, he's not living, but he's, you know, recently deceased. Um, but but that, 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 you know, so people come in and uh, get a coffee and we're talking about these composers, you know, like that's, to me, I, I, I exactly take the best thing of, of university and it was making music and talking about music. Those are the two best things about it, you know, and, and I want that in my life, even though I can't afford to stay in school forever. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so how, how am I going to do it? And it's been a long process, needless to say, I mean, you know, 17 years and, and going, uh, but we're so close now. We're really getting there where it's like, yeah, there's, uh, there's always something cooking up at one of the schools. You know, I, I walk by when I'm in town and uh, on Saturday, there, we, we started this little performance series on, on Wilson Saturdays at five. Um, this coming Saturday, it's actually, uh, we're, we're playing music of our student composers ages eight through 17, mm. um, you know, and it's an open reading, which goes back to our whole reading thing. So like all of those initial thoughts are still very much present within us. But when I walk by and I, I see a cellist in the window, I see composers with their scores consulting with somebody. I'm just thinking, yes, this is it. This is, you know, what I wanted. Now I just want to scale it like crazy. So it's everywhere, <laughs> you know? You're creating it, Seth. You are you are the guy who makes it happen. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. I, I love hearing about that. I mean, and I think as, as musicians, that's exactly what we all want to see is that people, you know, um, like the music just being disseminated in every way possible to any anyone possible. Um, I think that's a really good point too. You know, I think I, I heard Michael Gordon say this somewhere. Um, I think it was at the the Big Ear Festival in, in Knoxville. Um, it was something like, you know, we, we musicians get so hung up on this. Who's going to listen to my stuff? Who's going to listen to it? You know, and that that really hit me early because um, I put a CD of my piano music out. Um, you know, around 2002, a long time ago. And I remember like I was on a pool team. I, I still enjoy uh, shooting pool. And I was on a team and like my teammates were just like these classic bar guys, you know? And I brought the CD one time and they were just like, oh, who's going to buy that, man? You know, I'm like, yeah, it's not you too, but, <laughs> but, you know, but it did like hurt, you know, and, and it took me a while to become confident with, with releasing music again. But I saw this uh, panel and it was the three Bang on a Can founders. And Michael Gordon said, if you think your music makes the world a better place in any way, even a very small way, you should absolutely be putting music out there and worry about who listens to it later, you know? And, and I agree with that. And, and even though like I spend a lot of time thinking about how to package up music and, and, and put it in front of people, when I'm writing music, when I'm, you know, as I always say in my little room, cause I truly have a little room where I write music, when I'm in my little room, all I'm thinking about is writing the best music that I can. And I think everyone should. And then when it's finished, then yeah, you know, let's get it out there. But even if you feel like no one's listening to it, you still made it. It's still important. It, it's still out there. It's it's a it's a you know it's an intellectual idea that was made real, and that's no one can take that away. So that was really like eye opening for me when when uh, when Michael said that. I was like, yeah, thank you. That's that's really powerful. That's so true too. I I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, it's it's definitely hard for us to 
to to get to that point i think especially coming out of college and everything um yeah and and hearing it from someone of his level of success you know bang on the can level i mean that's yeah like bang, bang on the can was famous famously on that show arthur yeah, know, yeah, like, I, know. <laughs> I know that's like you know you're on nickelodeon you're that's a whole other level you know? <laughs> <laughs> i grew up watching that come on <laughs> exactly yeah yeah I mean, that's, you know, if only we were all in that point, you know? <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, bringing this out to a, a huge audience. I mean, and, and I, I watched like one of those episodes and it was really cool or maybe it was only one episode. I can't remember, but I, you know, I saw part of it, you know, and there's like, there's Ashley Bathgate. There's like, you know, there they are. That's that. so cool. You know, yeah. I mean, they're cartoon characters, <laughs> but it's all about creativity, about musical creativity, which, you know, is just, uh, it's really cool. I mean, when you talk about shaping sound, like everybody's interested in it, you know, how can you not be? It's, it's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had Alex Shapiro on the podcast not, not too long ago and, and we were having this conversation about like, you know, when you, you go for a walk or you're on a hike or something and you're just as a, you know, you're listening to the environment and you're hearing, you know, the musical, like the sounds that are taking place as like some sort of uh, ensemble in a way. And, and so you're always hearing music. It's always, it's always present. And uh, there's something to kind of get out of what every single moment of life, you know, oh, when, yeah. you, when you, when you experience it in that way. There's this great story. Um, if you know, Steve Mackey's piece, indigenous instruments, there's a part, I think it's in the first movement where the cellos detune and it does this like Rome, crazy gliss down thing. Uh, and it's, it's really distinct. It stands out in the movement a lot. And I heard him talking about it and he said he was in his office, you know, uh, at Princeton or someplace and, and a UPS truck pulled up and basically made that sound. <laughs> He's like, Oh God, that's going in the piece. You know, <laughs> but I always loved that. I mean, you know, cause I, I wish more composers were, were more open about their process. Cause I always find it so fascinating because half of it, not half of it, but you know, a certain percentage of it is sort of happenstance or luck. You know, you heard something and you, Oh yeah, that's, uh, I'm going to, that's, that's how my piece is going to open, you know? That's very true. I, I, I feel like there is still a disconnect between communicating the literal um, conception of an idea or like where it's drawn, drawn from, because like sort of going back to what you were saying in the mid 20th century with people like Pierre Boulez and the post 1945 composers and stuff where there was um, a highly intellectual academic way of thinking about the music you were writing. And I think that's slowly dissipating, but I also do feel like uh, the conversation about the actual literal nature of the creating of creating the music itself is not always so transparent. Like, like in that instance of a UPS truck. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and again, those guys in the forties, there's some great music there, but I'm, I'm highly skeptical of any composer who says that, that, you know, every note in the piece came from their brain and their brain only, you mm -hmm. know, it's just like, yeah, maybe, and maybe you're just not open to, you know, other sounds. I mean, because that's never the case for me. Never. I, I always, the finished piece is oftentimes very far from my original thought because mm -hmm you know, I go to a concert and I hear something, I mean, you know, or, or I, I, yeah, UPS truck pulls up or um, you hear the, the Chicago L, you know, especially on Wabash, just like screeching around the corner, you know, whatever, I mean, you know, things happen. And, you know, I, I just feel as composers, 
I, I can't imagine why you would say every thought, every every note, every, everything in your piece comes from only you. That's just a, a weird thing to say, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, th- my perspective is that there's all these techniques for composing are just tools, you know, and they can be used in whatever way in order to get the final product. But it doesn't mean that is the music. Yeah, I guess it depends. Again, you know, I mean, in in that era, you know, the more intellectual music, I mean, you know, and and I understand why. I mean, you know, in their mind, to a certain extent, you're you're sort of like, I mean, that was the first part of the postmodern generation or, you know, after, after, modernism where you're thinking to yourself oh we're dealing with this legacy right these 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 titans mozart beethoven etc you know and and uh beethoven certainly thought himself as a genius and and i think mozart kind of did too but i don't know that they thought that their music would still be performed 200 years later you know and so the composers who came after in in the late 19th century early 20th century are very much aware that if they do it right their music will be played for hundreds of years and so you know part of contending with that legacy was themselves thinking you know, I mean, almost casting themselves in that role of, of the great man role or the great genius role or whatever. And, and I think, you know, that that was a big part of what uh, the West Coast composers like Steve Reich and, and Terry Riley were really rebelling against, you know, in the 60s. And, and from, from my perspective, thank God they did, because I don't want to deal with that shit. I don't want 200 years bearing down on me every time I compose a piece of music. Right. You know, like, I, I just don't think it's, it's not, uh, yeah, it's something that, that's, not specific to classical music per se. Um, we're seeing it now in jazz, I think, and even in rock to a certain extent, where, where you you know you, you icon- iconize um, people. I mean, and it's just it's not helpful to the field at all. But you know, the, the, especially some of those guys that were just kind of like you know a towering figure in music, da 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 da. You know, <laughs> it's like I don't know. I'm not interested. I, I, I'm really not. I'm interested in communication. What did the person have to say? Uh, I, I, it's great that they said it well, but at the end of the day, it, it's, it's about communication, you know, and, and so the, some of the first people to wrestle with that legacy, unfortunately, the communication is not as strong as, as they're trying to present themselves as being at the same level. It's funny hearing you say that. Cause I realized not long ago, well, actually, no, I realized it a while ago, but like even the music I listened to as a kid, which I think all of us do for the most part is, is because of what the music did for me and, and specifically the music not the lyrics even even when i would listen to punk bands when i was a teenager that had some sort of like political bends to it or whatever like i liked the songs because of the way they made me feel yeah and and then the lyrics happened as like oh that's what they're saying okay cool but like it still didn't matter to me yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I mean, and I really think, I mean, again, it's it's really refreshing to see younger people. My generation, you know, I'm Gen X. We we were still very much dealing with this legacy of of you know, the, again, the great man theory, which is just such hogwash, really. I mean, you know, uh, why are we always worshiping what a great genius Beethoven was instead of talking about how great a lot of the music is? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's just a really weird focus you know or same philip uh it was the um um uh sorry frank lloyd wright you know the architect i mean like what a great genius you know it's like yeah i guess sure i mean but you know here's the thing i think we're all conduits for ideas and if it hadn't been him these ideas would have taken shape in someone else you know so like i'd rather celebrate the idea personally than the individual Mm -hmm. i don't think that there's any real you know i mean you can talk about people being 
being warm and being compassionate and being open and being this and that and this and that. But when you start to talk about somebody as a genius, somebody as above people, uh, it's just not, it's not right. You know, it doesn't help the field. It doesn't help humanity. <laughs> it doesn't really, you know, I mean, you can say, I'm amazed that such great music poured out of this individual. I'm amazed, you know, I mean, I just think there's a better way to phrase it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So it's still something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about but I think it haunts classical music. Um, it haunts our, our study of history, for example, you know, this great man theory. I mean, it makes things seem like it was inevitable. It was inevitable that, you know, the North won the Civil War. It was inevitable that, you know, because so-and-so was a greater general than so-and-so, or, you know, and it acts like it's like so much of it is part of human agency. And it's not, man. A lot of it is luck. <laughs> a lot mm. of it is sheer luck i mean and and uh so anyway that's that's a i'm getting on my soapbox here about this but it's something i've been thinking about a lot i think that um extolling the individual is um you know has merits but but also has has some definite red flags sure yeah completely i i, I like what you said about uh focusing on the idea you know, and this is honestly one of the things that I find you to be so intriguing, or why I think you're so intriguing is is the like I said, the Thirsty Ears Festival, the Silent Film Festival. I, I had never thought of anything like that. And like um, Marianne Parker, the uh, pianist, uh, who's a good friend of mine, she's the one who had told me about. Uh, I think both actually, and so I was fortunate to where we met the Thirsty Ears Festival to attend that. And there was like a small portion of the uh, silent film festival, right, um, uh, being performed and stuff. But what what exactly? I'm curious with the silent film festival. What prompted that? Like, where did that idea kind of come from? Because that I, I I really loved it a lot. It's such a cool <laughs> idea. Well, Adam, I'll tell you the truth. Because um, <laughs> you know I, I've got a story I tell people, um, but the truth is is a little more uh, prosaic. I think um, we used to do a series at the Green Mill. Uh, a really nice guy named George Flynn started it like way back. I don't even know in the '80s or something as a series called Chicago Soundings. And then um, he became very very generous and, and started to open up the Green Mill Sunday afternoons at 2 p.m. And I don't even know if they still do it, but it was this amazing chance to perform at the Green Mill. You know, it was a wonderful place. It was never hard to get an audience there. People always want to come out check out the Green Mill. Um, so we did a series there in April called Spring Spectacular. And in my mind, Spring Spectacular was just this total free-for-all. It was just anything goes. Whatever we think about, any idea we have, no matter how stupid, <laughs> we're going to do it, you know, if, if, it, if it seems like it'll be fun to do. Um, so we have, I mean, we, you know, and we, we partner with friends of ours. We, we'd, you know, showcase other people. We'd put our own musicians on it. But one of the things I thought, I, I thought, oh, during uh, intermission, I had met this magician, sleight of hand magician, and he was really good. Um, and I met him actually through Clarice Assad, uh, the wonderful Brazilian composer here in town. And um, I said, hey, do you want to be on my concert for intermission? I'll have you do your thing, which is so amazing. Uh, I'll make up music. In, in the, there used to be a piano behind the bar at the Green Mill. So I'll sit behind the bar and make up music for you. And um, But the sight lines in the Green Mill are terrible. They're really terrible because they have all these support columns. Um, 
So uh, we, we projected his hands onto a screen <laughs> and everybody just loved it. They really did. They thought this is the coolest thing, you know? And so when it was over, I started thinking, what else can I do with a screen? This is literally where it came from, <laughs> from, a, from a magician's hands. What else could I do with a screen? And of course, you know, you think of film. Um, and I thought, yeah, 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 film. I don't know. I wasn't so, so sure because I, I feel... Uh, that the music in, in films is often, you know, in the old days, it was not so bad, but now there's always sound effects over it, you know, and I just, it makes me, I don't know, I think the sound designer and the, and the composer should get to talk more, you know, because the composer always loses. Mm. <laughs> the, whoever does the sound design always wins. Um, and so I, I, then I thought, well, we'll do silent films. And then I thought, well, uh, we're a contemporary organization, though, so we'll do silent films by living directors, modern silent films. And then, of course, being who I was and am, without even bothering to find out if this is even a thing, I write my press release, because <laughs> this is always what I do. Um, I, it's, it's the Seth uh, stress method. Stress yourself out. <laughs> I write a press release. Oh, ACM presents, uh, what's it going to call? Let's call it the Sound of Silent Film Festival. Thinking of the Simon and Garfunkel song. <laughs> the uh, Sound yeah. of Silence. Yes, yeah, so it's the Sound of Silent Film Festival. Uh, we'll do it at the Chopin Theater. I, I lived right over there at the time. And, uh, you know, and it'll be, I think it was in October at the time. Boom, October, whatever, 2005, it's going to happen. And I get a call from like the Sun-Times or somebody. I'm like, oh my God, now I have to do this thing. <laughs> so I start looking for silent films. I was on, um, I'm trying to even remember back then because I, you know, 2005, I'm trying to remember if you, I mean, YouTube was around, but I don't even know that it was the resource that it is now, but I was Googling and Googling. And the only thing I could find, I mean, I had no idea if I had permission to use these films, but they, you know, they were uh, films that were already out there. And then um, I had a, a friend in the improv comedy world who did an improv show with film where they would get a suggestion from the audience and then they'd go out and film on the street you know, and they'd entertain the audience with something else. And then they would, they would make and edit this film in like 20 minutes and show it. I thought, oh, that'd be cool. You know, and then we'll improvise music to it, of course. Uh, so we had that. Um, we had a couple other films. This um, bar I used to hang out in the Intertown pub, two of the bartenders were filmmakers. All right, you're on, you're on the thing. You know, it was like that. It was just total, I did not know what I was doing. And then my wife and I went out to see movies in the park and they were showing Ferris Bueller Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I ran into a guy I barely knew. And usually when you run into people like that and they say, what are you up to? You go, oh, you know, not much. But he said, uh, what are you up to? And I said, actually, I'm starting this modern silent film festival, you know, live scored thing. And he goes, oh, that's so funny. The guy across the hall from me is making a modern silent film. And I'm like, all right, that's, this is like the most tenuous, you know, possible connection, but what's his name, you know? And I met him and now, I mean, 16 years later, we, we've, uh, we've made two films together that were on PBS. Um, he made a film called Manos de la Muerte, Hands of Death, um, which uh, I scored and then played the, the piano, score to on the first Santa Silent film. It's a really wonderful film. Um, so yeah, that was the first uh, time we did it. So, you know, even without putting much thought into it, the programming was, was, I mean, absolutely haphazard. You know, it's like, oh, my bartender is a filmmaker. Boom, you're on. You know, <laughs> this, this improv guy, you're on. This dude I met at Ferris Bueller, you're on. You know, like... <laughs> But we had this huge audience and, and people just loved it, you know, and I knew, I remember I went out with some friends afterwards that night and I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be stuck doing this every year. 
for a mm. long time, you know, and then uh, 2022 will be our 17th year. And, you know, and it gradually got better and better. And now, I mean, it's, it's totally different than the old days. You know, we don't do, it's just not that way anymore. Um, I actually, a couple of years ago, right before COVID, I brought back, or I, I started a late show because so we do a late show and it was uh, meant to be more of a free for all, like the, like the early years, but, but, but still with high quality film, but we would improvise. We would, you know, we invited whoever to do the music instead of like really strictly scoring it and playing with click tracks and like super rehearsed, et cetera, et cetera, which is what it's become, which is great. I mean, it's a really solid package now. Um, and in the films, we go through a, a company called film freeway, which is what everybody uses so we get films from all over the world. We have a review panel who, you know, recommends the ones of, at the right level. And then I curate it because I know, you know, this, this is a good time to put a funny one. This is a good time to put an experimental one. Like I have a really good sense of that. And then we commission composers. Sometimes we curate, we, we choose the composer. Sometimes we do a big call. Um, and uh, yeah, they score the films. And then our tech director, David Wetzel, which tech director in 2005, you know, I can't believe I'm throwing these words around. <laughs> I mean, uh, so yeah, we have a tech director who builds all the click tracks and then we put it together and it's, it's still, you know, you have to find ways when you've done something for 17 years, solid, you have to find ways of keeping it interesting. Um, I mean, for me, that's really important because I'm not a maintainer. I'm, I'm more of a creative person. Mm -hmm. I really want to just keep it creative. Um, so I think that's one of our weaknesses. Like we're always moving to new venues. I'm always trying different things. We did it on the street. Uh, we started doing it at Thirsty Ears just strictly, you know, we did a very stripped down because usually it's like, you know, two nights, it's a festival. Um, at Thirsty Ears, we, I think we do like six films. And I started doing that just simply quite frankly, as a way to sell more beer, you know, how can I keep people on the street longer? Um, but again, like people just, it, it was very popular. They love seeing the films out on the street, you know, and, and I was really impressed by the fact that they actually shut up and watch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, those are, I mean, those kinds of programs are just very, very ACM. They allow us to commission music. They allow us to work with live musicians. They allow us to be creative. They're, they're cross-disciplinary or collaborative in some way, which is really important to us. We really like to collaborate with other people. And they allow us to, to stretch ourselves too. I mean, you know, every year I want to think to myself, am I sure I can pull this off? I never want to be blasé about it. That's something that's I feel is really important, you know. Um, and not that I want to like stretch so far that I might fail like really spectacularly, but you know, I do want to feel that every year I'm trying out a new idea or, um, or putting something in motion that we haven't done before. Yeah. Wow. Shit, man. That's a cool story. Uh, like the, the start of that and then what it is now, what you said, it's like, was that 17 years? Is that 17 long? years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, a, that's the thing that like, it's so it separates us so much from any other sort of like, uh, like orchestras do the, uh, what's it called? Um, pop concerts, right? Yeah. They'll play along to a film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've seen that and I think it's great. You know, mm -hmm. I've gone and seen CSO do gold rush. I've seen, you know, yeah. a, a grant park, grant park festival does it, you know, and they've mm -hmm. got that, I mean, massive screen. It's just amazing. Um, I've seen it, but I mean, again, like for us, it's just, that's not very creative. It's, it's fun. It's a nice night for everybody. Totally. There's no, there's no risk. There's zero risk. 
I mean, you know, we're, we're working with unknown filmmakers, commissioning composers, giving them always 100% artistic freedom. I never know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, you know, I really think maybe we should change this rule, you know, but <laughs> I, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but, you know, composers are crazy. I mean, they are, you know, like, oh, I really want to do this. I really want to do that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> or, or people will say, can I, can I have electronics? And I always say, no, no electronics, because there's no way for people to know that it's not on the film. You know, we need to, we're going to wipe all the sound off the film. There will be no sound. Uh, they're, they're projected completely in silence. If there's a knockoff camera that the characters respond to, you have to create it acoustically. Like that's mm-hmm. part of the challenge of doing this without ever going all the way into Foley, you know, because sometimes people have wanted to do Foley sound effects. And I say, no, 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 we're a music organization. I don't want to go quite that far, but, you know, creative use of, uh, of the percussion is always fun. And this last year we did a hybrid outdoors and virtual. And for the virtual one, you know, I can't believe I never thought of this before. We had the percussionist actually demonstrate a lot of the sound effects that you would hear in the films. And that became a really popular feature. So like right before the film, there'd be like a one minute, hey, I'm Brent Roman. I'm the percussionist for ACM. And in the next film, you know, when the candle gets blown out, you're going to hear this. And he like slides a coin across the symbol, you know, um, and people were like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then what happens in the film, you know, they're like, oh, I know how that, ha- I know how he did that. <laughs> I know how that sound was created. Um, so that, that's actually become a really important part of it now. These, these kinds of sound effects that the composers create acoustically, because it just has to have that creativity. If it doesn't have creativity in it and, and collaboration, then for me personally, uh, you know, I'll come out, I'll get a drink with you afterwards, but I'm not that interested. Not really. This is so cool to hear. Cause it's, it's literally what you've been saying the whole time with access contemporary music, like having the percussionist explain everything you're giving the audience access to how this all was put together, what it means, what it does. And then they get to experience it in real time in, in the setting it was meant for like, yeah, that's the hope. I mean, the hope is that, you know, and then that maybe they go see something else. They go see Third Coast Percussion or they go see whatever, you know, and they say, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm really interested in how they did that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to know more. Um, I mean, that's really the hope that, that we're able to, to foster this kind of uh, interest in, in what we are all doing. Um, and, you know, again, you know, we've talked about this before, but I mean, you know, in, in the early years, I got a lot of flack about it, you know, from people. Why are you explaining everything? <laughs> Why are you accessible? Accessible is a bad word. Why are you this? Why are you that? You know, like our, our field is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, like I, I never said there was anything wrong with it, um, but, you know. I wouldn't mind if there were a few people at the concert who weren't composers, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, you know, that was the, the, the path, you know, that was the first question or the first thing I was thinking that led me down this whole path. Um, and it's not like I want to, you know, uh, I don't know, explain everything per se. I mean, some things should just be mysterious. That's fine. Mm. But, um, but watching people that never, you know, um, had an experience with this music like we did a concert for george crumb's 80th birthday and uh watching you know i always use this example my mother-in-law who's you know grew up on a farm in ohio certainly you know 
there's plenty of experimental music around her, you know, in the John Cage sense, but, but, you know, did not listen to experimental music. And at the end of the concert, she was just like, Oh my God, that whale song piece with the cello. I had no idea. You know, and to me, like Vox Ballonet is, you know, that's old hat. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like a Beatles song or something, <laughs> yeah. you know? but I was just like, Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. You never heard that before, you know? And I, that was, you know, still relatively early on in ACM's, because Crumb has, you know, been around a long time. So that was, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And I remember thinking, I want to recreate that moment with people over and over and over again, where they, they just say, like, I never heard the such and such sound like that. That's really cool. I think you are. I think you are recruiting those moments, even for people like me, who is a composer um, and, and knows this stuff pretty well. But um, so the, the timer went off a moment ago. Um, okay. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't get to touch upon that you want to uh, talk about or perhaps any projects or anything that you want to, you want to kind of mention to people or anything. The project I'm the most excited about right now, we started in April. Um, we've been doing a lot of stuff with architecture in the past, um, starting in, in 2010. Uh, we were commissioning composers to write music inspired by different significant buildings in Chicago and then placing musicians in those buildings um, and doing these guided tours. Uh, again, where you got an explanation from a docent about the building, and then you, the composer would say, yeah, and you heard all of that, and now here's how that inspired me to write this piece. And then you'd hear the piece, and then you'd walk on to the next uh, building. And so from that, over the years, we, we, we uh, eventually are launching now a new video series called Songs About Buildings and Moods, which we say combines architecture, music, and storytelling. Um, which, you know, to me are like three of the biggest buzzwords out there, you know, so like, who doesn't want to do this? Um, so we, we've, we've uh, commissioned music so far for five spaces and we finished filming in all of them. And, and the, the film is really high end. We're working with Dave Less, actually, the guy who uh, did the Manos de la Muerte film. So I'm like still working with this guy all these years later because he's a wonderful filmmaker. And uh, we're going to pitch it to WTTW locally. I'm really hoping to get it on, on PBS because um, the film work is just at a really high level. We even shelled out for a drone. Uh, so we have some exterior shots. We have like, it's just, I mean, it's really phenomenal. And each of the spaces, we, we were really careful about what we chose, you know, so there's really no skyscrapers or anything that's kind of austere and forbidding. Each space is meant to be a different uh, journey for the watcher, for the viewer. You really meant to immerse yourself in this. I mean, so the Treehouse Mansion that I wrote music for was built by this rich guy as a fireproof palace because he was so afraid of fire because uh, he you know lived in chicago after the great fire mm -hmm. um so it's this beautiful opulent place and yet at the heart of it is angst is fear you know um the first church of deliverance in bronzeville is a black church where arguably gospel was born it was also a broadcast center it was one of the most important beacons of black culture in chicago and it still stands and regina harris Bayaki's piece that she wrote for it really just kind of you know pays homage to all of that and we hear in the in the video from the pastor we i mean we hear this this legacy this this incredibly important role of, of uh, community service of worshiping god of making amazing music you know so you're immersed in that that world and then the Frank Lloyd Wright, the Emil Bach House in Rogers Park is a completely different thing. I mean, you know, he was mass producing these beautiful houses and advertising them in Ladies Home Journal, you know, as as the house for five thousand dollars, which even then was was pretty affordable. 
but they're beautiful and, and quite celebrated architecturally. Um, and then there's this whole aspect with that one of, uh, you know, it, it was meant to be right by the lake, but the lake has really receded, you know, so there's the kind of aspect of what we as humans can control and what we can't control. Um, and then from that, we're, we're in the TWA Hotel in New York, which was the Aeroseronin's TWA Flight Center built in 1962, which is this mid-century optimism, American can do, we put a man on the moon, we can do anything, you know, um, globalism, uh, extravagance, Camelot, excess, all of that is, is in that building, you know, and Stephanie Ann Boyd wrote this really wonderful piece, you know, just, she wrote a, basically a clarinet or a bass clarinet concerto that just showcases all all of that kind of ridiculous optimism that you know really got us in trouble <laughs> but so that's a series i'm really excited about we're, we're um, we haven't released them yet because we're trying to see if we can get them on pbs soon but hopefully sometime in 2022 we'll be able to start making those public and that's um to me it's just it's, it's the you know highest quality thing we've ever done i mean we really spent a lot of time recording the music and really putting this together and thinking about the film what story we're telling how the music is 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 every bit as important as everything else, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm really excited about songs about buildings and moods. That's oh, that sounds so cool. I mean, immersive experiences are often like the most unforgettable ones, and I'm always a huge fan of stuff like that. I, I hope to. Uh, is this is this going? This is going to be a, a live sort of uh, like performance thing, or 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 is it just going to be like a documentary or yeah, it, it, we're kind of referring to it as a docu series. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's meant to be a television show, quite frankly. Like it's mm -hmm. it's really meant to be, you know, yeah, not to be too grandiose, but you know, elevate TV. <laughs> you know, sure. like Tuesday night, what's on? What's on PBS? <laughs> you know, oh, here's this series about uh, you know musical visual interpretations of various and sundry spaces. You know, um, that that's kind of the idea. But um, we, we, we did, you know, at, at Treehouse on Friday, we did it live. We played the video for everybody. And then the musicians, what we said is we said, okay, you watched the video, you saw our interpretation of this space. Now we're going to play the piece again and you get to just walk around the space and kind of, you know, choose your own adventure at, you know, go into the rooms in the order that you want to do. And people really did love it. So um, I, I'm thinking about it, you know, yeah, primarily as a television series, but we might be able to do some site-specific performances as well. That's so cool, man. I hope that PBS is all on board. I don't see why they wouldn't be. Um, Me too. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, before we sign off, what is uh, what are some ways that people can reach out to you or any social media or how to find out what your latest exciting new projects that you're, you're taking on that are bringing all this stress on that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at social media, um, but I do, I put out a monthly newsletter, um, unless I don't have any news, I, I, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to subject you to my writings. I don't have anything going on. Um, uh, but I do write a monthly newsletter that, that, that I always open it up with, a um, you know, I don't know what you would call it, a, a story almost, um, of, of what's, you know, larger perspectives, things that are happening. And then of course the news that's happening. So that's, uh, could be signed up for through my website, which is just my name, sethbostead.com. And I keep the site pretty up to date with news. Um, and then AECM is actually launching a brand new website, hopefully later this week. We're like right at the finishing touches. Um, so I'm really excited about that. So that's acmusic.org. And our current site certainly functions. Um, but you know how it is when you're almost about to launch something new, you, you get really like, 
lazy about updating the old one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I look at the old one, I'm like, oh, it's so gross. I hate it. <laughs> um, but the new one is, it's just so shiny. <laughs> it's such a nice shiny toy. Um, so yeah, so that's acmusic.org. And then Relevant Tones, the podcast is on all the different podcast outlets or at relevanttones.com as well. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, well, we're all looking forward to the new website. I think uh, the, <laughs> the shiny factor is going to be a big one. <laughs> it's very shiny. Get your sunglasses out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, thanks a lot. This has been such a cool conversation. And and, and I really appreciate you uh, delving into the whole history of ACM and like your perspective and, and way of thinking about things. It's really incredibly insightful. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation.